sir. You're on my cord, sir. Oh, there sorry. Go. There we go. Uh, <clears throat> you can see me in the mirror. Hi, Hi buddy. Hey. What's up? Hey, Neil. Hey, Gwen. I wanted to say happy birthday, buddy. It's not my birthday, Gwen. It's not my birthday either, but you know whose birthday it is. Whose birthday? Spacing Radio, Canada's oh number one urbanist podcast. Hey, that's our show. It is our show. Do you have the facts to back that up? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's our third birthday. Okay. Okay. What um, about that other fact that you said there? The other fact? <laughs> yeah. Canada's number one urbanist podcast. Uh, well, uh, I mean, if someone wants to fight me for the title, they're welcome to it. Okay. Please email Glenn Bowerman at G-L-Y-N. You know the, the rest of it. <laughs> This is going really well so far. All right. <laughs> I was thinking, you know what I'd love to do for our birthday? Mm-hmm. Uh, get out of the studio and hit up a beach. Gwen, I've got very sensitive skin. I'm, I'm very pale. I'm not much of a beach guy, but I was thinking like maybe we could take like a really long bike ride, you know, on early in the morning because it gets too hot in the afternoon. Okay. All right. I think we could make that work somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I think what I'm hearing is that uh, it just it's the middle of summer. Uh, we haven't taken a break, uh, but we are sweating uh, our souls out of our bodies. And uh, it might be nice to, you know, treat ourselves. Well, yeah. Yeah, I like treats. Okay. So what do you got for me? Well, I think I've got a little something special. Okay. What I have is a long interview with uh, one of uh, Canada's preeminent urban planners. Uh, and I think what we can do is just kind of let it rock let people enjoy it uh, we cover a lot of ground and, and we can kind of hit the bricks so y- you want to skip out early is what you're saying i, I think after three years we maybe just one time kind of earned it buddy you're speaking my language okay well uh if we both agree uh then let's get out of here you just you got to start us off okay how does that go again yeah. I, i've already forgotten <laughs> wait hold on i'll do it I, i'm gonna do it okay hold on <clears throat> this is spacing radio Broadcasting from our third birthday party somewhere in the junction, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. This episode, we had a good, in-depth chat with Ken Greenberg, who recently released his latest book, Toronto Reborn, Design Successes and Challenges. Ken has been deeply involved in Toronto planning, urbanism, and advocacy for roughly 40 years. He founded the Division of Architecture and Urban Design at the City of Toronto, where he served under mayors David Crombie, John Sewell, and Art Eggleton. He's seen a massive amount of change and growth in that time. In fact, he's been a big part of it from project to project. And how do we keep that spirit of growth, inclusion, and progressive thinking in the face of a mounting anti-urban agenda? We get into it, so stand by. So, Ken, first I want to start with uh, talking about the, the book itself, uh, your latest one. You've, you've written a couple of books, but uh, uh, this new one, Toronto Reborn, uh, I wanted you to sort of walk me through the, the impetus. Uh, you know, what, what was the core concept that you were trying to address? Toronto Reborn um, kind of emerged from me watching some 
pretty interesting changes happening in the city. One particularly was the Bentway, my experience with the Bentway. Mm-hmm. And I gradually came to uh, the notion that if you looked at physical places that were undergoing transformation and dug into how they happened, where they were coming from, what the impetus was, and looked at a number of these, many of which I've been involved in, but some of which I haven't, uh, it would be a really interesting lens to look at how the city was changing. And I've always found, I found the same thing writing the first book, uh, this one, I have a lot of things that exist in pockets in my understanding, but I don't really fully put them together until I sit down to write a book. Right. And it kind of forces me to pull back a little bit and kind of lay them all out on the table and ask myself the question, what, what is this telling me? Mm-hmm. What do these actually mean? And I, I came to the conclusion when I did that that probably more than I had even realized or thought, Toronto is going through a metamorphosis that makes it quite special in the world. Mm-hmm. And that really led me to the, the fundamental thesis of the book. Yeah, you say, uh, you know, your, your journey, you, you came uh, in the late 60s, I think 68, right. you said, uh, where you were a student and then you worked for the city for a number of years, 10 years under mm-hmm. three different mayors uh, under the, uh, what was your official position? Um, I was assigned the task of creating an urban design group and I, eventually I was called director of architecture and urban design right. for the city. And at the time that you came to Toronto, you, you, you say that it's it was kind of a unique time for a modern city where... Uh, we sort of rejected this post-war notion of uh, the car is king. We have to redesign all our urban spaces, uh, primarily for the mm-hmm. automobile. Uh, you know, it was the time of urban renewal and Robert Moses and yep. that, that kind of everything old is garbage, get rid of it, and, and we're going to reinvent the city from the ground up, knock it down, build a new one. Uh, and then right kind of down to the wire, I think everyone's familiar with the battle against the Spadina Expressway, but there, there were a, a number of things that you, you mentioned in the book. Where yeah, we, sh- yeah, shocking to people today is that um, iconic buildings that we treasure, like St. Lawrence Market, Union Station, Old City Hall, were all literally slated for demolition. I mean, quite seriously slated for demolition at the time that I started working for City Hall. Um, along with large parts of neighborhoods, ripping up the streetcars. The 1969 plan for Toronto still suggested that our main streets, of which we're so justifiably proud, were obsolete and they should be replaced by malls. So we ended up with the Dufferin Mall. We ended up with uh, a mall at at Pape and Dundas, uh, a little mall in the beach on Queen Street, And so what was basically in the offing was a complete remake of the city based on another model. And the succession of municipal elections leading up to David Crombie becoming mayor um, led to a council which eventually had a majority which called itself the Reform Council and initiated a really uh, almost turning the aircraft carrier around uh, 180 degrees and that was the moment when I joined the city to assist in that effort. And it was, it was a pretty exciting moment. And I think people today will be surprised that uh, uh, it was a, a unique time in the city because there was kind of 
political harmony in a way. You mentioned that uh, this kind of new reform uh, city hall was a mixture of small C conservatives and then kind of more radical, maybe a little hippy dippy, uh, you know, grassroots uh, reformists and, and uh, somehow they, they found common ground and, uh, now we've reached this point in the city where everything old is new again. We we realized we had such great bones, to, you know, and that uh, you know we didn't need to reinvent the city. Um, and and now we're we're kind of well placed. We are. We're we're on on the foundation laid by that reform council. We're moving on to the next level. We're becoming a much denser city than anyone ever imagined. Uh, one of the things that happened with the Reform Council was passing the Central Area Plan. The Central Area Plan was a huge deal. It proposed what was then a radical idea that people would live downtown. Mm -hmm. And when we see what downtown Toronto looks like now with 250,000 people in the core and a population that's going to double by 2041, the idea that people thought no one would want to live there um, seems extraordinary. Mm -hmm. The development industry fought that notion Right. And there were a number of battles at the Ontario Municipal Board, uh, but eventually this uh, this became uh, a very powerful force. And of course, it's being replicated in cities all around the world where center cities are now becoming a magnet for populations. But the density of the city is something that we would never have imagined at that time, which is on the one hand causing us to be much more inventive about dealing with many things, which I write about in the book, uh, and proposing many new challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's just lifted us to another level of effort. Right. And what are some projects? I mean, you, you mentioned the Bentway, but uh, what are some other projects within the city that sort of, uh, you know... Well, I, I pick a bunch of things. The transformation of neighborhoods, so King Spadina and the neighborhood that I live in called Wellington Place, I use that as a test case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use Regent Park as another different kind of neighborhood, which has taken the largest post-war housing project um, in the country mm-hmm. and transformed it into a really interesting mixed-income neighborhood, and a project that is, is currently underway. So I talk about neighborhoods. I talk about streets, uh, the transformation of Queens Key, the King Street Pilot. I talk about public space using the example of the Bentway as a prime example of found spaces, uh, a reintegration with nature. The Leslie Street Spit is a remarkable creation of nature itself, taking over a a landform that was intended to create an outer harbor that never came to pass. Um, I look at the transformation in suburbia. I was involved in the plan for Mississauga City Center, uh, Mm -hmm. 2021, as it was called. We're rapidly approaching that date and an amazing change has taken place. Um, So those are among the things I look at, and I deliberately pick things that were very different, everyone involving a different dynamic, different actors, and I'm trying to paint a picture of a city that is perpetually unfinished, Mm -hmm. that is constantly reinventing itself, and is made by thousands of people acting autonomously or semi-autonomously producing a new city every morning when we wake up and what that looks like. And the one thing that really struck me is the combination of the phenomenal growth that we're experiencing and the extraordinary diversity that characterizes our city with over half of us 
coming from another country, over half identifying as visible minorities. Mm -hmm. And the way we're experiencing that and receiving that and how we think about it makes us truly an outlier in the world. I know of no other city, certainly not south of the border, if we see what's going on there now, which is um, almost the country where half the people are calling for it to be a racist country, to put it very uh, baldly. Yeah. Um, and the bet that the president is making that that's, that's the key to winning an election in 2020, extraordinary. And you look at all the European cities and the Asian cities and the whole notion of difference which we generally embrace, not perfectly, for sure, um, just doesn't seem to exist anywhere else. And I think that, in turn, is, I think, largely responsible for the growth we're experiencing, the openness, the welcoming character of Toronto. And it's that particularity. And then how do we equip the city? How do we fit out the city to deal with that that eventually ended up being the focus of the book? Right. Uh, you said something two years that uh, two years ago that I think has haunted me to this day. I think about it roughly yeah. once a day. Uh, it was at the Kenyu Summit in Winnipeg, and uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, you know some of uh, some of the best laid uh, urbanism uh, plans, uh, with all the best intentions, uh, can sort of lead to gentrification and can kind of further. Uh, drive a wedge, a wedge that's already exploited politically by Rob Ford uh, when he was the mayor and now Doug Ford to a certain extent as premier. Uh, and, and you posed a question to the room about, you know, how as urbanists can we look to, you know, spearhead all these projects and, you know, improve neighborhoods uh, while making sure that we don't displace people and making sure that, uh, you know, the foundation of those places, the people, uh, you know, remain secure and, and still uh, are able to live and thrive in that community. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you've, um, two years later, if, <laughs> if you've, uh, uh, you know, if your thinking has evolved on that subject. Well, I, I still firmly uh, believe that and see that. I think it's even more evident. Um, you know, if you look, go back a few decades, we were trying to rescue the cores of cities, because mm -hmm. less so in Canada, but certainly in the U.S., they had become hollowed out through a big post-war suburban exodus. So all the effort was to, and you know, going back to the central area plan in Toronto, to get people to live in the center of the city. Well, we've exceeded beyond our any expectations we could have had, and it's being driven by, uh, not by ideology, but it's being driven by convenience, especially people in your generation, I don't know if you live in the center of the city or would like to, uh, right. but certainly anybody who can find a way to live without a car, to walk, to do things, to have access to transit, to be able to bike, to be close to work. Very powerful motivator. And not surprisingly, that has caused a bidding war for all parts of the pre-war city. Yeah. And hence, we call that sometimes gentrification. But... It is um, something which is, in a way, unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And the only way to deal with it, and I guess that's what I was getting at two years ago, is to acknowledge that with that success comes an obligation to provide significant affordable housing, social housing, as we develop. And one of the techniques for doing that is sometimes called inclusionary zoning, which many cities 
have actually adopted, which uh, demands that wherever significant development occurs, a substantial percentage of the housing goes to um, off-market solutions, whether it's rental housing or um, housing for purchase with, with some uh, way of controlling what happens to the equity so it doesn't simply get sold off. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and we must do that unless we want to create a city where increasingly we're polarized by center city, desirable living, all of those characteristics, and pushing people out into the suburban fringe where they don't have those benefits. The other thing we have to do is we have to retrofit suburbia. We have to actually make great urban places in those post-war suburbs. So I'm currently working in Brampton, I'm spending one day a week working with the city of Brampton, now a city of close to 600,000 people, mm -hmm. um, really working hard to transform, it, transform itself to possess those characteristics that people desire so much in the heart of Toronto uh, so that young people coming up in Brampton won't feel that they have to leave in order to have a good job or a great place to live and can actually build a future for themselves in Brampton. Right. Even within the city of Toronto, uh, in, in the inner suburbs, uh, you, you were involved with the Tower Renewal Project, uh, yeah. uh, which which is, th those projects were, for listeners, and, and you mentioned it in the book, those are a kind of holdover from that sort of modern uh, post-war, like, knock it all down, we're, we're going to re-envision how we build cities, didn't quite work out. And now uh, a lot of people are spending, people like you are spending a lot of energy thinking, like, well, what do we do with it without knocking it down and starting again? How can we make this actually, like, a thriving place, that uh, you know, a, a center of a community? No, it, it's a great example of, A, unintended consequences, things not working out the way we anticipated. Those towers, and we're... Along with New York and Moscow, we probably are one of the cities in the world that has the most of them, and they're spread out throughout the entire region. We're designed essentially to relate to the highways. Mm -hmm. The assumption was that everybody who lived there would drive mm -hmm. for the most part, um, and they were aimed at young professionals. Well, lo and behold, fast forward a few decades, they end up being immigrant reception areas for the new arrivals to the country. Many people living there without cars, mm -hmm. Terrible long bus commutes, food deserts, um, the whole thing doesn't work. And yet at the same time, they're providing valuable, quote unquote, affordable housing to a large population. Thorncliffe Park mm -hmm. has the largest elementary school in the country, right. over 2,000 kids. And it's almost all people who've recently arrived as a great example. The mall at Thorncliffe Park... If you go there, it's full of all kinds of businesses that cater to that community. Fascinating place. So you can't just write those places off. We can't make the mistake again of saying tabula rasa, let's start all over again. And so really interesting new design solutions are required to recolonize those buildings. And tower renewal, which actually originated um, at, uh, at the University of Toronto with a graduate thesis, um, and ERA Architects is now playing a major role in, in carrying that forward, um, is a really smart response. Can we use the territory around those towers, a lot of which is scorched earth, right, yeah. parking lots? Can we bring in other uses? Can we provide employment? Can we diversify? Mm -hmm. Much the same way that we're diversifying at Regent Park. 
and uh, to go from the inner suburbs uh, uh, of Toronto to uh, the waterfront, um, you, you've been involved in an advisory capacity to what's uh, being a, a, become a very divisive topic uh, in, in Toronto, but an exciting one as well. It's, you know, challenging to talk about and think about, but also, you know, there's a lot of possibilities. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, red flags that uh, people are waving, uh, but uh, I think you're you're kind of on the side of uh, you know this this idea of a smart city, a planned smart city neighborhood. Uh, Sidewalk Labs is spearheading. Um, can you talk a bit about that and, and what what's the promise that you see there? Well, first of all, let me take away the smart city sure. label. Uh, the smart city is not a term that Sidewalk ever uses or okay. Waterfront Toronto uses, and it sometimes sometimes is interpreted as being essentially about the technology. Mm-hmm. And let me rephrase it as an intelligent city, which is based on good urbanism, first and foremost, aided by new technology, but not always reaching for a tech solution when another solution is available, being very judicious in when to use technology and when not. I think one of the things that's interesting about the current discussion is that the people who are raising concerns, in many cases I agree with. I think the issues they're raising around how data security is handled uh, for sure have to be dealt with. Um, How the city engages with the private sector in innovating. And I think what's what's good about this from my standpoint, and I, I actually am optimistic that it will force the city of Toronto through this experience and Waterfront Toronto as the manager of of the project Mm -hmm. to up their game, to basically face something that we are facing anyway, which is a whole set of new technologies arriving that we all use every day, whether it's the phone in our pocket or whether we make use of rideshare or almost everything they do on a daily basis, like it or not, is now informed by some form of technology. Mm-hmm. And so I make the analogy with what happened after World War II with the car, where we had uh, an uncritical, almost euphoric embrace of a technology, and we ended up transforming the world based on that technology without really considering the consequences. And we now are making a comeback. So the response to getting people back on foot and on bicycles in a way, is a reaction to the over-adoption of the car. So I, I think Sidewalk Labs and what's happening down on the waterfront at Keyside presents a real opportunity to have a careful, thoughtful, public examination of what this all means for the city. How do we avail ourselves of new ways of doing things where we're making critical choices? We're deciding when to use technology, when not to use technology. And my role in it as an urbanist, not as a tech person, is to make sure that we favor, above all, face-to-face human contact unmediated by screens or by phones. And so huge emphasis on public space. And how do we make public space in a way that actually encourages people to interact. And I I make the point in the book that this is particularly important for a city like Toronto with such a heterogeneous population because we have an extraordinary need to get to know each other, Mm -hmm. which we've done pretty well in the older parts of the city. We do less well in settings where everybody's driving. 
because there's less space, there are less places, less of the commons where people actually come together and do things together. It does happen, but I think creating those spaces for interaction, um, which is direct and unmediated, uh, I think is really important. I, I came across this term from uh, the tech sector called disintermediation, which to me is a terrifying term because it means taking the human beings out of interactions. Okay. And yeah. some tech people think that's a really great thing. Mm -hmm. If you can, you know, labor saving. The more it also people sounds we, like a Black Mirror episode, yeah, right? <laughs> the more people we can replace, the more we can do online, the more we can do on screens eventually leading to interacting with robots when you go to a coffee shop. Right. Um, you know, that, that's not the world I want to live in. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to make choices about that. And I, I think Sidewalk Labs is really all about that kind of discussion. Yeah. Uh, but for a project like that, um, you know, how do we bake equity into something like that and keep it from being, you know, kind of a futuristic playground? You know, how, how do we when we talk about like the need for affordable housing and that kind of thing, is there something that the city can do to work with a project like side, Sidewalk Labs where uh, we make sure that baked within these uh, new opportunities is uh, you know, equitable solutions for everyone? Well, great point. Uh, Sidewalk Labs has embraced a whole set of serious challenges, affordability being first and foremost one of those, and I'll come back to it, it's not just housing, it also applies to places we work and right. shop and so on, uh, but also the imperatives of dealing with climate change, of dealing with new forms of mobility, and so rather than starting with the tech solutions and saying the solutions are, are driving the answers because we're, we're going to find a problem because right. we have the solution, I think Sidewalk Labs has started with the, with the big problems we're facing as a city. So on the issue of housing affordability, we do not currently have citywide inclusionary zoning. And in fact, our provincial government has just said we can't, mm -hmm. which is pretty devastating. Uh, Waterfront Toronto has been requiring a 20% rule for affordable housing. Sidewalk Labs has said, let's go to 40%. And this is not a technological device. This is finding new financing mechanisms so that we can address that issue of a full spectrum, not only of affordability, but different households. How do you change architecture to make that work? How do you explore options for co-living? A whole bunch of things that you can unpack in that, which are not necessarily about technology. Technology may be involved peripherally, mm -hmm. but it's about values and about social choices. The same applies to retail. Uh, a lot of the new development, if you look at what happens on the ground floor, they're all the big franchise outlets, and they're all the same everywhere. And you know, the brokers who package those will come with a stable of the usual suspects. And Sidewalk Labs has adopted a strategy on the ground floor called the STOA, which would actually come up with um, a rental structure that would allow all kinds of small entrepreneurs, maker spaces, social spaces that don't currently exist on most of our main streets. So I, I think social equity is absolutely baked into the project. Will it solve everything? Probably not. But can it, in that area and in so many other areas, be a, a pioneer 
in developing new ideas, new concepts that can be applied more broadly. And what's really interesting to me is a lot of other developers, even before Sidewalk is approved, and even if it is never approved, are already picking up some of these ideas. And uh, I'm almost loath to do this, but uh, you know, I, I like to light a candle, not curse the darkness for the most sure. part. But uh, it bears speaking about. Uh, I think you wrote this book uh, prior to June seventh, uh, two thousand eighteen, uh, the the provincial election, uh, and it it was kind of a time of optimism. We had taken some bruises during the Rob Ford years, but uh, you know, you, you say in the book that uh, we were getting lots of interest and investment from all kinds of sectors. Uh, uh, you know, we were coming up with ideas like Rail Deck Park, and like you said, successfully implemented things like the Bentway. Uh, and then comes Doug Ford, and Doug Ford. Uh, it's not a not a big fan of Toronto as it is, uh, as many people uh, envision it, uh, and so uh, we kind of have to deal with that reality on top of all the work that uh, everyone's trying to continue to do. Uh, so uh, I mention it because you mention it in in, in your preface to the book uh, at, at some length. Uh, so what what's changed about the landscape, and and what does Toronto do to sort of maintain its autonomy and continue pursuing these projects? Uh, you know, in, in the face of a sort of a hostile provincial government. So I had actually turned in the manuscript for the book. <laughs> um, and then came the provincial election and the aftermath. And I realized that I could not allow the book to be published with the, albeit cautiously, but pretty optimistic tone without taking into account what was already evident uh, with this new provincial government, which is no more, though, no less than an onslaught on the city. It started by slashing the council in half in the middle of, a, of an election campaign, um, invoking the idea that the province would use the notwithstanding clause, um, and then pretty much a slashing, uh, a kind of devastating attack on everything from early childhood education to autism, to post-secondary education, to transportation, to environmental projects, really across the board, and it continues to this day. Yeah. I wrote about as much of it as I could in a chapter that I added. And again, I wanted to get behind the laundry list of grievances, which there are many, and it, and it, it keeps being added to, to what was driving this mm -hmm. and what, what's at stake. And I ended up, when I tried to put it all together, to realize that it, it really is an argument about what a city is, who it's for, how it works. And on the one hand, we have the city as a millennial project uh, of a collectivity hmm. where people are mutually dependent, where they work together to find solutions, where we measure ourselves by how we support the most vulnerable among us in the city and we enable people basically versus a view of a city if you like as an agglomeration of individuals and households and I you know it all goes back to Margaret Thatcher's famous quote there's no such thing as society and in a way that seems to be when you strip it all away that seems to be the underlying common factor to this buckshot of 
seemingly unrelated dismantling of all kinds of things that support the city and essentially sending people to private solutions. Mm -hmm. And I, I make the contrast between what I understand as Canadian values, which tend to be more about the acknowledgement of the collectivity and the success of the collectivity versus a highly individualized idea of success, whether it's privatized healthcare or extremely expensive post-secondary private education or so many ways in which American society is more oriented to the private than the public. And I, I think we're, we're in a real test period. What this has done, it didn't, I, I end up saying it's a long game. Mm. And I think we have the resources, we have the bench strength to survive this. I see the popularity of the government as we're recording this. Plummeting. Is plummeting. <laughs> I think people are reacting. I don't think the the thesis that underlies the moves of this provincial government is really gaining traction. If anything, I think it's uh, turning a lot of people off. We will see, but it's making it much more difficult. And one thing it's doing is pulling people together. Like We've had votes at council which are virtually unanimous across the political spectrum, which was very unusual, mm -hmm. uh, pushing back on behalf of the city. I think it's causing civil society to step up in all kinds of unexpected ways and, and take a more significant role. So it doesn't fundamentally alter my long-term sense of the trajectory of Toronto. I haven't come to the conclusion that we're going to be pushed off track and unable to, uh, to be the city that I think we can be. But I think, the, the, in, a, in a sense, the stakes have been raised very, very significantly. All right, well, Ken, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. Ken's book, once again, is Toronto Reborn, and you can find it at the Spacing Store or at your local library. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your Dragon Boat team, the Woodbine Beach lifeguarding staff, and your cousin from Calgary. As always, a like, share, rating, or subscription on iTunes will go a long way to helping us find new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Until next time, have a barefoot walk in the sand. Cheers. Cheers.